Amen. King of kings and Lord of lords, the one we come to worship today. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians, chapter 1, third sermon in our series, Jesus is More Than Enough as Redeemer today. Passage is verses 15 through 20. This can be found also on page 983 in the Pew Bible. If you'd like to follow along there, we'd encourage you to do so. And please stand as you're able for the reading of God's Word. Speaking of Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. O God, uncreated one, creator of all things in earth and in heaven, sustainer of the universe and the redeemer of that creation. We come to you today fully and wholly dependent upon you to speak to us by the power of your spirit through your word. Change us, conform us more into the image of this one that we magnify today, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. If you missed out last week, we continue to explore today what many scholars believe was an early hymn of the church in these verses that we just read. Last week, we looked at the first part of the hymn, Jesus the Creator, as we explored verses 15 through 17. In that first part of this early Christian hymn, we saw that Jesus Christ is the image of God the firstborn of all, the creator of all, and the sustainer of all. Jesus is God. Jesus is sovereign over his universe, and as a result, we, as his people, can take great comfort that he cares for us, and we can trust him to sustain us in this life and in the life to come. And today... We continue in the passage in verses 18 through 20 to explore the remainder of this song, seeing Jesus as Redeemer. The focus changes a little bit from Christ as the divine sovereign king over the creation to Christ as the divine sovereign over the new creation. This theme of God as creator and redeemer is one that is common and prevalent in his word throughout the Old and New Testaments. It is part of a large meta-narrative of the history of the universe. 
It is truth itself and reality itself. At the very beginning, he created everything and it was good. Sin entered the world through man's disobedience, bringing with it separation between God and man and casting the world and everything in it into darkness. But God had a plan. It didn't take him by surprise. This wasn't plan B. It was planned in the counsel of his will in eternity past. He had a plan to remedy sin, to bring light into the darkness, to reconcile or to redeem his creation that he's sovereign over. And here in this brief hymn, Paul presents to us the eternal Son of God as the agent of both creation and redemption. There are several uh, what we might call couplets or parallel ideas in this hymn, which is a very common poetic device in the Bible, that we see in the first and second section. I think it would be helpful to see those as we begin today, because some of the verbiage will even be familiar from last week as we look at the verses today. In verse 15, for instance, if you look there, we saw last week that Christ is presented as the firstborn of all creation. And then in verse 18, where we'll look today, he is presented as the firstborn, again, from the dead, it says. He is the image of the invisible God in verse 15, all that it is to be God. The image and the imprint of God himself is Christ. We see that in verse 15, contrasted with verse 19, which says, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And we see that all things in heaven and earth were created through him and for him in verse 16. And then in the conclusion of verse 20, we see that he will reconcile to himself all things, whether in earth or in heaven. The hymn brings together in unity these two aspects of creator and redeemer in the person and work of Christ. The Son of God leaves nothing unfinished in his work and in his creation. The work that he began both in us and in his universe at the beginning will be completed at the culmination of all things by the one who is the sovereign Lord. Take great encouragement and hope in that. God is not finished. The Lord Jesus is not completed his work. But one day it will be and it will all be made new and whole again. In the second part of the hymn that we are looking at today, it begins in verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. Jesus Christ is more than enough because he is the head of the church. Paul emphasizes a very clear metaphor of the early church that Christ is the head of the church, which is likened to a body. Christ's relationship with his people takes on an additional element that is unique from his relationship to the rest of his creation. As the head of the body, there is an organic relationship or connection to the church. And that same relationship doesn't exist with the rest of his creation. This illustration of the church being a body is found throughout the New Testament. It's not a strange metaphor to you. 
most notably in a number of Paul's letters in Romans and 1 Corinthians and Ephesians, the parallel letter to this one that we mentioned last week that there are many parallel passages in in Ephesians uh, to Colossians, a church just 100 miles down the road from Colossae. And they were dealing with some of the very same issues that those in the Colossian church were. And Paul wrote these letters during the same period of time and had them delivered at the same time as well. And so as we look to Ephesians 4, where we see some similar language, it expands a bit on this body metaphor that Paul talks about. Listen to these words from chapter 4 in Ephesians. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. There's that idea of the fullness of Christ that we've just read about. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes, many of the things that the Colossians were going through and what was happening to them and those that were promoting wrong teaching, but rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Christ, our head, enables us to grow through his love as we cooperate together, submit to him, submit to one another in unity as the body of Christ. Jesus' role as the head of the church necessitates unity in the church. Think about the analogy of the body. For the head brings all of the members of the body into alignment with it to function in unison for a common purpose. Could you imagine a body that was divided into different factions, each part with its own will and desire and direction, one leg going one direction, one going the other? What chaos. But bodies don't work that way, do they? Nor should the church. All of the parts, the hands, The ears, the eyes, the feet, they function under the leadership of the head where the brain resides. In the same way, the church should function in unity under the headship of Christ, our Redeemer. If we imagine that something or someone else other than Christ is in charge or at the head, then chaos will ensue and the church will be helpless to function as it should. As our head, Christ then becomes the object of our worship and affection, the one who we submit our wills to. As we speak the truth and love, we will grow up in every way, as Paul says in Ephesians, into him who is the head into Christ. And as every part of the body, each member of the church is working properly, we will grow building ourselves up in love. So even as Christ sustains his creation as the source of life, as we saw last, in last week's message, so he is the head of the body, which is the church, providing all that the church needs to function and be healthy. 
Continuing in verse 18, it says, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Point two in your outline, Jesus is more than enough as the firstborn from the dead. It's a very interesting turn of a phrase, isn't it? The firstborn from the dead. The word beginning here, earlier in the verse, implies founder. In the Greek word arche, this is the same word used in Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 2, a very familiar passage which describes Jesus as the author or founder and perfecter of our faith. Jesus, the head of the church, is its founder, its beginning. We opened our service today with the hymn, The Church's One Foundation. It almost preached my sermon for me through every stanza, speaking of so much of this truth found here in Colossians in this passage. A great hymn. He was the firstborn from the dead. He was born to new life out of the tomb first so that we might follow being born again to new life out of our own death and into his eternal life. And in all of this, and because of all of this, Jesus Christ is preeminent in everything. He is in first place above everything. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, Paul uses a similar idea to describe Jesus' supremacy in the resurrection. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. While Adam wasn't technically the first human to physically die, one of his sons was that, he was the one who led us into death. The initiator of death for the human race, if you will. Christ, the second Adam, was the first to lead us into resurrection life. Peter O'Brien says of this that Christ is the beginning in the sense that he is the firstborn from among the dead, the founder of a new humanity. The resurrection age has burst forth, and as the first who has risen from among the dead, he is the first fruits who guarantees the future resurrection of others. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is a wonderful reality for us who are trusting in Jesus. For Jesus, the founder of the church, the beginning of the church, the head of the body, has brought us into the fold in newness of life that we might partake of his benefits and live eternally. Having overcome sin in the grave, through him, the one who went before us became sin for us, entered into the grave first for us, rose from the dead first for us, 
It was thereby made a way for us to follow him there. Jesus Christ is the firstborn among the creation, not in that he was a created being, but in prominence and position. He is the second person of the triune God, the eternal Son of God, all that it is to be God, Jesus Christ possesses. Very God of very God. And he is also the firstborn from the dead. Completely human in every way except sin. Taking on flesh as the second Adam, he came as one of us to redeem a people, a body, a bride for himself. He is the supreme one and the only God of the universe. And he is the singular one and only perfectly righteous human who has ever lived. And together, this union of perfections make him the preeminent one in the universe. There is none like him. No other being can vie for his position. He is the one and only Jesus Christ, King of the universe, Lord of the creation. And he is supremely worthy of our worship. There is no other. Jesus is more than enough as the firstborn from the dead. Continuing in our outline, we see that Jesus is more than enough in the fullness of God. In verse 12, we, we read, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Last week, we looked at what it means that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, and we unpacked this idea of his fullness dwelling in Jesus. Everything that God desires and wills that we should know about him is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We need look no further. As we consider that the fullness of God dwells in Jesus bodily, as we'll see later in the book of Colossians, in his role as redeemer, we can be encouraged that Jesus is enough as the redeemer of his people. He is not merely some servant of God who is taking orders in the process of redeeming the world. He is God the redeemer. All that it is to be God is Jesus. The one true triune God whose plan from eternity past was enacted in the fullness of time, the scriptures tell us, at just the right moment. And Jesus, who took on flesh, was fullness of God in helpless babe, as the hymn in Christ alone tells us. All that it is to be God, Jesus brought to earth in his humanity. Of course, this is too wonderful for us to comprehend fully. We can't possibly reconcile all of that in our minds and in our limited understanding. But we shouldn't let it confuse us. We should instead let it drive us to worship. For this one, this preeminent one, is worthy of our worship. And because Jesus is more than enough in this, there is no need for intermediaries, no need for spirits or angels or saints or priests to intercede on our behalf or to pray to because we have fellowship with God through Jesus because he is the fullness of God.
Jesus is enough because he is the fullness of God. The final point in the outline, Jesus is more than enough as the peacemaker of earth and heaven. Take a look at verse 20 where we read, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So if reconciliation is needed, it follows that something's broken. Something has been interrupted. Something has been divided. That the current situation of Jesus Christ and his creation is not what it should be and not what it will be. Even though, as we saw last week, that all things were created through him and for him, that ideal is not being fully realized and there is need for reconciliation in order to restore the divine order of things. We know that the relationship of God and his creation was broken at the fall when Adam and Eve sinned and plunged all of us into darkness and all of the world into darkness. Douglas Moose states that the key to understanding this phrase, reconcile all things, is the elaboration in the clause by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The language picks up this widespread Old Testament prediction that in the last day, God would establish universal shalom, peace, or well-being. When God returns, when Jesus returns to set all things right, there will be complete and utter peace and well-being in his universe. What a beautiful thought in our broken and chaotic world and violent world. God is establishing perfect peace, a state of well-being for his universe. And while there is a strong sense that this peace is coming to the people of God in our hearts and in our lives, the concept also suggests that the wider creation in general is also in need of restoration. And we know Paul addresses this in Romans 28 with these familiar words. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage and its corruption. And to obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been, what? Groaning. Together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. The reconciliation that brings all things whether in earth or in heaven together, is Christ. Remember that in the first part of this passage, we saw that all things in heaven and earth were created through him and for him. Well, 
Would we suggest then that he would leave one atom of his creation, whether in heaven or on earth, visible or invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, just up for grabs? Of course not. Be assured that the creator of everything will not leave one speck of his creation outside his authority and dominion in bringing about reconciliation of the new heaven and the new earth. When you're looking out there in the world and seeing the chaos and seeing the destruction, the violence, the sadness, the brokenness, none of it will be left outside of the authority and dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will bring all things in his creation in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, into reconciliation with him. This is our hope. And the prize that he reserves for himself in this restoration, the grand prize for Christ, is his bride, the wayward church, who he has purchased for himself as the apple of his eye. As the blood of Jesus shed upon the cross of shame is applied to the hearts of his people, we are at peace with God. If you belong to him, then you are not at war with God. You are at peace with him. But only those bought with the blood of Christ will have peace with God. Those outside the church of which Christ is the head will bear the wrath of God upon themselves for their sin and their rejection of the preeminent son. Perhaps this seems a bit harsh to our modern sensibilities. But how could it be any other way to reject the supreme creator, sustainer, and redeemer of the universe is to reject life itself? And how foolish one must be to do so. How dark the heart must be. But as the old gospel song states, there's room at the cross for you. So don't reject Jesus Christ if he's speaking to your heart today. Turn from your sin and embrace him as Lord and Savior. Kiss the Son, as Psalm 2 tells us, that you too might make peace with God through the blood of the cross. So St. Andrews, brothers and sisters, how shall we respond to this preeminent one, this creator and redeemer that we have looked upon? Earlier we read from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I want to read on from the verse that I read to you in our conclusion today. So starting in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them 
and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the creator and sustainer of all things, the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, the preeminent one, the redeemer, has given you and me his ministry of reconciliation. Entrusting to us the message of the gospel. I'll dispense with convincing you that the world is in need of that and is in need of the peace that only God can offer in the gospel. I'm going to assume you'll agree with me on that one. We all understand that we live in a broken world and it is in desperate need of good news and of peace from God. So in light of that truth and the fact that we have been entrusted with this message of reconciliation, how shall we respond? As our culture continues to become hostile to the gospel and wickedness seems to be on the advance, it's tempting, isn't it, to retreat, to hide behind the walls of our fortress? But our call is to storm the beaches of the culture and society. Not as culture warriors, but as peacemakers. Those with the good news of reconciliation. If we would see the culture change, then we must see lives changed in the power of the risen Christ through his life-changing message of the gospel. That's the only way lives are changed and transformed. So how do we find the courage and will to be salt and light for our Lord in our society and in our world that seems to be ever more hostile and increasing in wickedness? First, we need to acknowledge that we don't have what it takes in and of ourselves. But Jesus is more than enough as Redeemer. Look to him in worship, as this hymn directs us to do. If your heart truly enjoys and loves the preeminent Christ, the Son of the living God, you won't be able to contain yourself, and the gospel will spill forth from your mouth as readily as anything else that has your full affection. Beloved, this is the blessed hope of God's people. This is what we stand in, where we take our place in the grand scheme of things. This is our reality. So get your eyes off of the brokenness, off of your own insufficiency and your own failures, and instead look alone to the preeminent Christ of the universe. We must pray that God would enable and equip us for this work. We must join together in unity and purpose as the body of Christ under our head, the Lord Jesus, if we are to find success in this mission. We must leave the confines and safety of our church and go to a world that is in desperate need of the news of the peace that God offers. And we must be convinced that for all of this, Jesus is more than enough as our Redeemer. Let's pray.
O Father, we stand and pause in worship today of the Lord Jesus Christ, the preeminent one, the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer of all of creation. And Father, in our deepest hearts, we would desire that you would return and that you would complete your work and set up your reign and that we would be at peace in this world. But Lord, you haven't called us to sit and wait for that. You called us to go to a world that is dying, a world that is dark, a world filled with violence and cruelty, and to spread the message of peace, to bring the gospel to bear, that men and women and boys and girls might come to know you as Lord and Savior, and that they might too join their voices and hearts in the worship of the preeminent Christ that we exalt today. And so, Father, give us boldness and enable us, encourage us. May we focus our hearts upon you, the magnificent one, the wonderful one, the uncreated one. And, Lord, as we focus our hearts upon you, may that drive us to our knees in worship and may it drive us to serve you with all that we are in proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.